Hey folks, welcome to the House of Kraus. I'm Richard Kraus. Happy New Year. I know, I know. It's January 2nd. I'm a bit late on that. I don't know whether you're still supposed to say it or not. Is it bad luck? Is it good luck? I don't know. All I know is that over the past few weeks, it's been really crazy busy around the House of Kraus. We had so much good stuff to put up that we forgot to do a best of show. People have been asking, so here you have it. Here are some of my favorite interviews from 2016. A little bit later on, we'll get to Cheap Trick. Jonah Hill will stop by and George Zimbel will be here. You don't want to miss his interview. He's got a great story about one of the photographs that is one of the classic photographs of the 20th century. You don't want to miss that story. First up though, Spike Lee. Words like confrontational, controversial, and audacious have often been used to describe Spike Lee. Now those same words and more, think boisterous and dynamic for a start, can be applied to his film Chirac, a modern-day adaptation of the Greek play Lysistrata by Aristophanes, first performed in 411 BC. It is a heady experience. Spike Lee is fearless in his handling of the material, taking chances narratively and visually to tell the timely and hot-button story of a, quote, self-inflicted genocide, end quote. It is powerful, preachy, maddening, but ultimately unforgettable. Here's Spike Lee talking about Chirac. Congratulations on the film. Thank you, sir. Yeah, I saw it last week, and it has really stayed with me. Uh, in a way, I knew it would be a movie that I'd be thinking about for a little while afterwards, for some time afterwards. But uh, there's been things that, that keep dawning on me, and I'm going to run a couple of things past you and just to get your reaction, if that's okay. Cool. There's a scene in the film, and this doesn't give anything away to people who will be reading this eventually, where Jennifer Hudson is cleaning... Uh, the blood stain of her daughter off the off the the ground off the street, and there's a point at which the camera sort of pulls away. We don't see the blood stain anymore. We just see her face, and as she scrubs and scrubs to get this this blot off the street, eventually she puts the the bucket of water down, and this red stain just goes everywhere. And yes, I sir. thought for such a hopeful movie, in the idea that you know, perhaps something can be done. It seemed to me that that was a, a metaphor for just the spread of this violence. Am I reading that into that scene, or is that what you intended? Well, I didn't really intend that, but I do see what you're saying. Yeah. And that's the great thing about art. I'll give a, a quick example. And do the right thing. Mookie throws a garbage can to the window. I, when I wrote it, my feeling was this. Mookie has just seen his best friend murdered in a choke, you know, strangled to death body in New York City Police Department. People have come up to me through the years and said their ter interpretation was Mookie threw the garbage can as a distraction. Right, right. <laughs> so... So Sal, Vito, and Pina would not be killed yeah. by the, the, a mob of angry black people. I did not think that, but that was some people's interpretation. That's, again, that's the thing about art. You know, you really can't dictate how people are going to interpret it because everybody comes from a different place. You must, but I will not argue with what you just said. Well, because it really it, it is, has stayed with me. The look on her face, the, the whole scene is just but, so... But, do, but you, do you know Jennifer Hudson's history? Yes, well, that's the thing. You know, it would I mean, she, for, for your readers, I don't think it's a 
doing, you know, this is no knowledge that Jennifer's mother, brother, and nephew were murdered yeah. in Chicago. So I think that's extra gravitas that you have with Jennifer Hudson in this film. This is not an act for her. Yeah. She, she is a, you know, she got hit directly by gun violence on the south side of Chicago. Now, when you were thinking about casting, and I mean, she seems like, you know, an obvious choice, were you reticent to approach her because it might yes. have been too close? Yes. Yeah. Number one, I didn't want her to think that I was exploiting her. Mm -hmm. And so... There was, I knew I wanted to, for the part, but there was some length of time before I got the courage enough to, before I got the courage enough to approach her. Also, when we did meet, you know, I was going, I was babbling. She said, Spike, I know why you want me to do this film, so you just stop. I'll do it. <laughs> <laughs> she, you know, I was trying to, you know, I was trying to, be sensitive, and I turned out just babbling and, and you know beating around the, the point in the bush. Says Spike, I know why you want, I know why you want me to do it. I'll do it. <laughs> and I said, Oh well, I'm just going to shut up. Yeah, say like, thank you. You got what you got. You got what you came for. Right. Uh, now, do you think that there were there were some or were there for you some particularly emotional moments working with her because uh, oh. it, on set it must have. Yes, dredged out that, some ghosts. The scene where she arrives upon the murder scene yeah. of her daughter, and also scene with her and the, the we call it the the bucket of blood scene, mm -hmm. was shot on the same day. Wow! So it was a very very emotional day for Jennifer. Very emotional. Well, she's terrific in the film. Yes, she is. And and also. That song you hear over that scene, that's her singing, too. I was wondering about that, yeah. That's her. Yeah. Now, John Cusack has another remarkable scene. Yes, we call one. that the, uh, it's a, we call it a, eul a eulogy slash sermon. Right. Well, the, the, the thing that really grabbed me about it is that, and not only is his performance something to see, I mean, it's so fiery, but it... It encapsulates every point that the movie needs to make, and I, I don't know how long we, it is. It like a, I think it's a 16-minute scene, and you might say that it would not be true if somebody said, Spike, you put everything in that but the kitchen sink. Right. And the reason why we do that, because this, was a, this, was, this would be a place where we could lay out why... Jennifer Dustin's daughter is in that casket mm -hmm. because already we 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 had to give a reason why things are, and we didn't do that. It was just because it was, then it would just be well, black young black men are pathological, so that's what they do. No, this scene had to explain give the reasons why the conditions exist, and the also at the same time not absolving individual responsibility. Right. How long did it take to write that scene? Because uh, I can only well, imagine. Well, that scene, that's, we had a, you know, we, Kevin and I wrote the original scene, but then we got input from Father Flager yeah. and 
John Cusack. So I would say we, we, the four of us wrote it together. Many of the lines in the script were taken from stuff, lines I heard Father Flager saying in church at St. Sabina during his sermons. And he's a Roman Catholic priest that's had this church for 40 years in that neighborhood. Yes. And, and all black. This congregation is all black. Right. And, and, and I would say only 25% are actually Catholic. Right. And, and I, I think he's, he's one of the living saints, you know, in America. Not, yeah. not, just, not just Chicago. Yeah, and, and how did you meet him? Well, two years earlier, he asked me to speak at his church during Black History Month. And uh, that's where our friendship, because he called me out. I never heard of him until he approached me to, to speak at his church. And I was doing my research. I said, wait a minute. This is a white Catholic priest. With a, with a church, his church is on the south side of Chicago, and his congregation is all black. I got to meet this guy. <laughs> <laughs> and was that maybe the beginning of you, the thought process that eventually led to the film? No, no, no. At no way, shape, or form. And I think when I was there in Chicago about doing a film about shooting a film in Chicago. Yeah. That happened last year. Right. And uh, met with some controversy. With the film has has stepped beyond that controversy, I think. But at, in the moment, uh, the mayor was was giving you a rough time. I think. How do you weather those storms? Well, I think that when you've been weathering storms since 1986, <laughs> yeah. you know, my first film, you know, you get you get battle tested. Yeah. Battle tested. And it's just something that can only come with experience, I guess. Yes. Yeah, yeah. You know, that's, you're absolutely right. I'm telling you, because the weather, the, you know, the, the shit storm that hit me, they do the right thing. I was much, I was able to weather because, you know, I had gone through stuff with the first two films, She's Gonna Have It, and uh, School Days. Now, you started then research. I'd heard uh, that you started about six months before the, the camera started to roll. What kind of yeah, research? In January. Did you do? Well, I, we're just talking to people, meeting mm -hmm. people, getting the lay of the land. Yeah. People becoming, what's well, very important, not just meeting people, people becoming comfortable with, with me. Right. People will open up to me. And what kind of things did you learn from them? The human spirit is a great thing, yeah. but at the same time, you know, I'm dealing with people, dealing with mothers, you know. But here's the thing. At the end of the movie, that scene where everybody's dressed in white mm -hmm. and they surround uh, Jennifer Hudson, Nick Cannon, and Angela Bassett, those women are not actresses. Those women are members of a group called pain over purpose. They're mothers whose, whose children have been shot down, whose children, whose sons and daughters have been shot down the streets of Chicago. It's, and those pictures they're holding up are pictures of their loved ones. Wow. So it's, 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 it's very hard, but, but I mean, it's very hard to listen to I had to do it, I understand it, but the pain of a parent who's, loved, who's lost 
a love who's lost a, a child by any circumstance, whether it was shot, hit and run, whatever, is still something that no parents should have to go through. Mm-hmm. No one. And and just no one. And yeah. they all say that there's a hole in their spirit, in their soul that's never going to be replaced. And many of the those mothers have, have tried to commit suicide to various other problems since then. But uh, yeah, holding strong. It, it's remarkable when you when you think about how you started shooting. From what I understand, June first, and you finished on July 9th. And during that time, 331 people were wounded uh, and shot. Wounded, well, shot and wounded. Yeah, and, and, and 65 were murdered. Right. And the the film it's gone up since then. Yeah, and and the film though has a really interesting tone to it. There, there are, by times, moments that will rip your heart out, but there are funny moments in the film. There are, there are dance numbers in good, the film. I, I think, not to cut you off, but I think that's what good satire does. Yeah. Where you get that right mix, that right balance. Was it difficult to find that balance? Oh, it always is. It was difficult doing that and do the right thing. I mean, that's not an easy thing to do. Mm-hmm. And I how do you know that, when I you think that I stand, and I'm going to, make a great leap to say that if Stanley Kubrick was alive, he would say it was hard to do that on Strange Love. I would say the same thing uh, for Tessanne with A Face of the Crowd. I would say the same thing for Sidney Lumet, for Network. You know, it's hard to do, but it's a great way to, to deal with serious subject matter. And how do you know when you've hit it? Hmm. I don't know how to answer that question. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you, you just cross your fingers and hope? <laughs> well, you, not hope, but you just work in the editing room and uh, your, your gut reaction. Yeah. Now, what do you hope people take away from the film? The takeaway is that life is precious. Yeah. Life is precious. That was Spike Lee talking about Shy Rock. Check it out. It's one of the most interesting films of 2016, and it's easily streamable these days. Although, legally, of course, no illegal downloading at the House of Krauss. By definition, the term war dogs refers to bottom feeders who make money off war without ever stepping on the battlefield. In the new film War Dogs, Jonah Hill plays Ephraim Divaroli, a true-to-life 20-something arms dealer who fits that description to a T. I spoke with Jonah Hill just before the movie opened, and he told me some wild stories about meeting South African arms dealers and how they were really impressed with him after seeing the movie. So when something like this comes across your desk, is it the story of two 20-something entrepreneurs who get involved in the war business that grabs you? Is it the chance to play a flamboyant character like Ephraim, or is it some kind of alchemy combination of both of them? Um, I would say both. You know, it was a story about that I couldn't believe it was true. It was so insane, and understanding war as a business and all of these kind of corrupt things within the American government, and I just found it all really fascinating. And then the character uh, that I I get to play is so uh, sociopathic and manipulative, yet charismatic and funny. So 
it's a rare mix of things to get to, you know, play a character that can be funny but also very dark at the same time. And I, I found that really exciting. Yeah, the film is is part drama, part comedy. Um, and is there a different sort of side of your brain for each of those, or is the process the same? No, I mean, the, it, it's so. I mean, I mean, it's funny, but it's not like. Um, broad humor I would say maybe so when you're making like a broad comedy you're really your main focus is jokes and being funny whereas being funny within a a more dramatic story the humor comes from character more than anything and and so uh, you're really just getting to focus on playing the character and I really like that a lot and are you drawn to characters like Ephraim I, I think of Donnie Azoff and The Wolf of Wall Street, these kind of guys that are morally ambiguous, I guess, would be a way to describe them. I'm perfectly, you said it perfectly, yeah. I'm really interested in playing morally questionable individuals because morality is so specific and individual for each person. And when you make movies like this, you get to see where the audience draws their own personal line with right. that. And I find it really fascinating. It's a true story. It's something that we've read about in the in the paper, so people will know about it a little bit. But what do you hope people take away from this? They'll be entertained, but it, it, it's illuminating. I learned things from this mm-hmm. movie that I couldn't believe were true. Yeah, I mean, first and foremost, you want people to leave saying they were really entertained yeah. and having felt really entertained. But yeah, I think you end up learning so much about war as a business and all of this corrupt stuff. And a lot of times in movies you you can learn about facts that happen. But what this movie does special and the director Todd did special was that he gives you all these facts but in a really entertaining mm-hmm. way. And that's that's cool. Did it make you think about things a little bit differently once you learned all this? Because the idea of war as a business is 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 a huge concept. It's a huge concept to grasp. And you were sort of, I guess, right on the inside of this as the character. Did it make you think about things differently? Yeah, I had never, I never knew any of this stuff before I read the article and then the script and then made the movie. So for me, it was just opening up a lot of doors and things that I had never opened before. That was Jonah Hill talking about his character in War Dogs. Now, George Zimbel is a legendary photographer, the subject of Zimbalism, a documentary about his life and work, written by the Gemini Award winner Matt Zimbel, who also happens to be his son, and Jean-Francois Gratton. His work has been published in the New York Times, Look and Life magazines, and has been hung at New York City's MoMA and the Tokyo Metropolitan Museum of Photography. He's also the lens responsible for one of the most infamous and famous pictures of the 20th century. Here's his story. Let's go back, if we can, uh, to the night that you took a very famous photograph of Marilyn Monroe. And I'm looking for the date here in my notes, and I can't seem to find... 1954. 1954. It was on Lexington Avenue. There was a press conference for Seven Year Itch. No, actually, it was a shoot. It was a. They would. They did the movie right in on Lexington Avenue and Fifty Second Street with the crew uh, and a Hollywood crew, 
And uh, um, so they allowed the still people, there must have been maybe 15 people there, um, to shoot in before while right. they were doing the warm-up of the scene. So that was quite interesting. And you weren't initially one of those 15 that was chosen to go, though. No. And so how did you end up there? <laughs> Uh, there was a photographer named George Carger who was a famous, uh, well, I think famous anyway, a Broadway photographer. And uh, he said to me, uh, hey, kid, you, uh, you, you want to shoot the most famous movie star in the world? And I said, yeah, Mae West. <laughs> Does anybody know who Mae West was anymore? <laughs> I know who Mae West was, but that's my business. That's my job. <laughs> yeah. So... Uh, he said, no, Marilyn Monroe. I said, let's do it. Oh, yeah. And he gave me his credentials. So I didn't have credentials for that. Yeah. Uh, a lot of my friends did. Right. But and I wasn't really that interested. But I went. <laughs> and um, and I, I arrived early. And this is, this is the difference. I took a, a Norwood photo meter, which... It's a light meter, right? It's a light meter, 25 bucks at the time, right? <laughs> And I went and stood where Marilyn was going to stand, and I took a reading. And I never varied that reading. That's the reading right. that I used. And that meant that when I was photographing, I was photographing into the Klieg lights. I was, photo oops, I was photographing things that, that spontaneously allowed me just to work. I right. didn't have to keep taking media readings. I didn't have to, for instance, with a digital camera, it keeps changing according yep. to the scene. No. This was very straightforward. And then she arrives. And that was amazing. She, what a pro. Marilyn, what a pro. She, they, they would, the photographers would say, and I'm not including myself, because <laughs> I just, I was there, but I wasn't there in right. a certain way. And they would say, can you do this? Can you do that? Yes, yes. She'd do it. And the, and the tech people, they would blow the skirt up. Yeah. And then at one point, they blew it up over her head, and everybody <laughs> laughed, and they were having a great time of it. And DiMaggio was getting really, really, really upset. Joe DiMaggio, big-time baseball player and her husband at the time. Right. And so he probably did, he was very protective of her, and he probably didn't appreciate the skirt being blown up over her head very he, much. He did not appreciate that at all. <laughs> <laughs> and um, he he um, finally he and Walter Winchell, the famous okay. Broadway guy, they walked off the set right in front of the movie. Ca I mean, I'm not talking about our cameras, right. but they had a Hollywood. <laughs> he walked right in front and off the set, and they were really ticked off by the whole thing. And your photographs, though, are different than the other 14 photographers that were there because your position was different. Well, that's true. Yeah, you stepped back a ways, right? <laughs> well, I well, was stepped back by the New York City Police Department. <laughs> the, the, what happened was um, the Leica is very quiet. Right. Okay, and so when they said, they used to have a thing, no more photos. Yeah. That, and everybody had to stop shooting. All the press, knew, I knew all those guys. They, they stopped because that was the code. And I said, oh, you know, this is just too good, and the Leica doesn't make any noise, so I'll just keep shooting. Well, it took about two minutes, and they walked me, the cops walked me off the set. Somebody 
somebody complained, yeah. and I don't blame them, but anyway, I tried. So they put me in the front line of behind the police line, which was a great angle. Probably better than the, <laughs> the earlier angle. Matt, and when you were growing up, were you aware of these? Were you aware, like, my dad took pictures of Marilyn Monroe. How cool is that? No, because uh, he, the story is that he went home after the shoot that night. He developed them um, and he put them in an envelope and he never opened them up again until 1976. And uh, the reason is that I think, well, I mean, it's funny to say this sitting across the table yeah. from George, but... He was kind of embarrassed about it because it was a celebrity shoot, and he didn't do celebrity photography. Right. So right. he took them, put them in the envelope, never printed them. They were never printed until 1976. And then he went and looked at them, and he realized, no, this is not about celebrity. This is about people working. Yeah. And it suddenly had – and he loved the shoot. He saw it, and it, was, it made sense to him. And he said, yeah, no, no, this is this – is, I'm going to print this. Could you not have made a few dollars from them, though, in yeah. 1954? Don't tell my wife. <laughs> no. That's George Zimbel talking about taking photographs of Marilyn Monroe. Now, do you know where you were on July 8th, 1977? I do. I was 14 years old at the Halifax Forum, gearing up to see Kiss's Love Gun Tour with an opening act called Cheap Trek. My first big rock show, and I remember it as if it was yesterday and not... <clears throat> almost uh, 40 years ago. A lot has changed since then. I don't wear braces anymore, for instance, but one thing hasn't. With 20 million albums sold, 40 gold and platinum certifications for 16 studio albums, Cheap Trek is still rocking as hard as they did when they made my 14-year-old braces rattle. They were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and with a new album called Bang Zoom Crazy Hello available now, founding members Rick Nielsen and Tom Peterson stopped by the House of Crows. This was a, a significant moment for me. For you, it would, you would have been just with, a... You, you look good without the braces. Well, thank you very much. They, they did their job. So this was just another show for you. Tell me... Oh, I would guess it was, because I'm not going to ask well, you specifics about it. Uh, it was... Uh, specifics? It was just... It was... Uh, it's like yesterday. Sort of like the early part of the 1977 tour we did with Kiss. We started in Moncton, mm -hmm. and then uh, I don't know where, what number in the order we were, but uh, we went all across Canada and... And that was our first. That was our first big break. And you had sort of met them while you were playing at Max's Kansas City in New York City, right? That's correct. And yeah. tell me about that. Tell me about Max's first. This is Tom. Uh, tell me about Max's because I've only ever read about it. It's a legendary rock and roll bar it's, in New York City, long gone. Yeah, it's down like around I don't know 15th and Park Avenue. Yeah, it's a photo store or something now. But anyway, it it was the kind of the rival club to CBGB. CBGB's was like total punk scene, and Max's was like the glam scene. Right. And that's where Andy Warhol hung out, and you gave a guitar lesson to Andy Warhol. Did that happen at Max's? Uh, no, that happened when we played at uh, bottom the Bottom Line. Right. And uh, he came saw us at our show first, <clears throat> actually our first show, because we didn't do the second one. We didn't play the second set that night, and the owner said, you're never going to work New York again. You know, like, oh, no. You know, it's like... So he didn't like the music? Or? Well, no, no. He was right about one thing. We never worked the bottom line again. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry to hear it. Yeah. No, it was just... It was kind of a press sort of thing. And we thought we'd played, like, lame clubs in 
all around the country. Yeah, which we did. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. But that was like, there was like big pillars all over. The, it was like there was no good line of sight to see anybody. And it was right. small. And uh, we, you know, we were, our first record had, you know, it wasn't even out when we played at Max's Kansas City. If we're going back to that, yeah. you know, I think it was like a Thursday night in 1976 while we were doing our first album. And when Paul and Gene, Paul Stanley and Gene Simmons came in, yes, they knew about us. And we, you know, of course, we obviously knew them, but we never really met them. But uh, they came to our show. And I think there was maybe 15 people there. <laughs> it wasn't, you know, it was like we were totally unknown, but we wanted to play. And uh, it was set up for us. And uh we entertained those two boys and uh, and Wayne County was there. Wayne really? County, yeah, Jet yeah, Boy, was Jet Girl, right? Was that was that was Wayne County, right? No, Jet Boy, Jet Girl was uh, the the plastic. Yeah, you're right, uh, Plastique Bertrand. Yes. Yeah, that's right. Uh, yeah, I, I can't really name any of the uh, <laughs> Wayne County ones because yeah. it's all profanity. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Wayne County was before Jane County. That's electric, right. yeah. electric chairs was yeah. this band. Yeah, yeah. And what were those days like? Tell me a little bit about that. I'm watching Vinyl right now on, yeah. uh, on hey. HBO, and that show is painting this picture for me of what it would have been like in New York in 1973. What, what oh. when you think about it? Tell me, Tom, what you what your first memory is. Well, you mean when we went to New York at that yeah. time? Well, that was a little after that. It wasn't 73. It was right. probably 76, and uh, it was. Wild. I mean, we recorded our first album at the record plant in New York, 44th and 8th, which is in the heart of Times Square. And Times Square was a pretty scary place. Yeah, yeah. It was all uh, the, called it the Deuce, right? I don't know. It was it? I think it was called the Deuce, that neighborhood, and it was all you know, peep shows and, and yeah, it terrible was people. Forty-fourth yeah. and eighth. Yeah, that was yeah, uh, that where was Show World was. Yeah. yeah, and we were at third. It was a third? No, no. Th what that's that? LA. Are yeah. uh, oh, you talking about the record plant in Los Angeles? Yeah. yeah and, but that, you know, there's two of them. But the one in New York, yeah. that's where we spent all our time was there. And you, you stayed, you stayed. Uh, I stayed in Jack Douglas's apartment, which he wasn't in anymore, up, <laughs> up near the Dakota. I think it was on 75th and Amsterdam or something. And yeah. the, the other guys in the band stayed. They were down at the Gramercy, uh, Gramercy Park. Park. And I stayed with Jack Douglas in, in Montclair. Uh, Montclair, New Jersey, yeah. right next door to Yogi Berra. Oh, really? Yogi Bear lived next door to him. Yeah. <laughs> That's cool. And my roommate in Jack's apartment was a grave digger. Really? Yes. Well, that makes sense because <laughs> you had just come out of a band, not just, but a few years before called the Grim Reapers. So maybe it I was... Suppose, a, yeah, I never, yeah, I suppose it was <laughs> predestined. Jack Douglas, of course, the legendary record producer and uh, really famous for making records with John Lennon, but lots of other people. Aerosmith. He, he's in Aerosmith, but he essentially discovered you guys, right? So, it, kind of, you know, like he knew about us and uh, he was going to Waukesha, Wisconsin because that's where his uh, his in-laws lived. And we played quite a bit at this, uh, it was called Sunset Bowl. It was a bowling alley and then we'd play on Sunday nights and he was going to be there. And so we we had a pretty good following by then and but it was a really a drinking bar. We, we usually played downtown Milwaukee but the, because of Jack, we went there, and he came, and we didn't know him, you know, and it was like love at first sight. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he loved our band, and we weren't signed. And and Tom, you have a, well, he was really instrumental in getting mm -hmm. us. He, we were unsigned, and nobody, we, nobody were, we were trying to get a record deal, but it right. wasn't wasn't working out. So he said, "When you guys secure a record deal, I'll sign. I'm signing on as your producer." And the minute that the labels found out that he was going to produce us. 
they got into a bidding war. And we were signed. And all of a sudden, all the people who had turned us down, they thought, whoa, maybe, hey, these guys are a lot better now than they were last week. <laughs> uh <-huh. laughs> so all of a sudden, we were brilliant. I'm speaking with Tom Peterson and Rick Nielsen of the band Cheap Trick. Their new album is called Bang Zoom Crazy Hello. That's is that, right. Is that's right. It's sort of a Three Stooges kind of feel to it, is that? Uh, or uh, we, we, Steve Dowell, you know Steve? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, he was the one that started doing that with the Jerry Lewis. Hello, right. hello, uh, at <laughs> the end. And then, uh, then uh, what's his name? Uh, Mark Goodman. Used to be right, on yeah. MTV, and now you hear him on... I hear. I've just heard him last night in Canada. He's on. He's on almost everything. He's oh, on, really? He's a voiceover of Chevy, of this, of that, and that, and that. If you go down the line, if, wow. if you as you listen to ads, listen for his voice. Just like about about every other ad, and, and he's been doing it. I've I met him on a plane twenty five years ago after MTV, and right. he was like flying first class to to New York from L A. or back and forth or wherever. And I was like. And he just did a show with us the other day. We did. It, we were at uh, a competitor in New York. Yes, they're all competitors for you. Uh, yeah, but Richard, so. you're, you're the greatest. I heard you're you're like number one or but, but something the, like in, that. in my own head. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. in my own, own head, head, I am. Yeah. Well, hell, you. Who else? <laughs> nobody has asked us anything about seeing us uh, with Kiss in 1977. You're the first. That was... Uh, and you, honestly, like I said, you look great with those braces. <laughs> that show uh, it meant so much to me. It was my first big rock show. I had seen uh, a couple of other smaller shows in, in rinks and that kind of thing. Grew up in Nova Scotia and Canada. Yeah. yeah, And and, uh, and and uh, that's where, you know, when you live in a rural place, that's where bands play as they come through. I'm sure you must we have played, played a lot of rinks. I yeah. saw the Yardbirds in an ice skating rink and so did Rick. Uh -huh. Did you? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Original band, yeah. and so without Clapton, not not the original. Yeah. But it, but the Yardbirds for you and Jeff Beck in particular were such a a, a big deal. Was that a, like a, a monumental show for you? Oh, uh, which one? The, seeing them at the we, rink, yeah. Oh yeah, wow. it was, it was, I don't recall that that many people. Was no, there were, it was a huge blizzard, and it was out in the outskirts of town. It, it was, was a, you know kind of a disaster show, and but, nobody. But the we Yardbirds were not big, they, and there were probably maybe a hundred people there. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. I'll, I'll show you something here. Keep talking. I'll keep talking. So I want to go back just a little bit. We're talking, we're reminiscing a little bit. We'll talk about the new album and all the cool stuff, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in in, uh, in a couple of minutes. But I noticed, Rick, that you're wearing a shirt that I think has the logo of your dad's record yeah. store on it. So uh -huh. um, tell me a little bit about, oh, yeah, and you're showing me a photo right now. That's cool. You've saved the ticket stub from that show. So the Yardbirds plus Mickey They and the Them. Oh yeah, wow. they were all they were all blonde, like peroxide blonde. <laughs> See what there. it says? Sunday, December eleventh, nineteen sixty-five. Wow. Rock, Rock River, Rock River Roller Palace. It was halfway between Rockford and Byron, Illinois. Oh wow! And it was you know just a big old dumb room. Yeah. And they played in Chicago later that night. It says. I recall it being in the afternoon. No, because remember, we almost got killed along maybe, the way. <laughs> maybe they played in Chicago and then came to right. know, out there. Yeah, I bet it was, because it was terrible weather. We couldn't see anything, and it was ridiculous. But you I had to care. see the Yardbirds. Oh, come on. Oh, yeah, yeah. the coolest. 
got you know could stand right there and it's like how'd they get that that sound on the guitar you know like we could have probably you know. just walked back there and started talking to him we never considered it right well rockford illinois is where which is where you're both from and right. and you still live there right tom you don't uh, i don't i live in nashville tennessee you live in nashville now but uh but rick you still live there you I grew do. up there your dad's store was there your your parents were opera singers and involved in music so do you think that you were kind of predestined to be a musician or is it is that off base you know it's like the only thing i can remember ever liking you know yeah. you know besides drinking heavily you know no. uh you know my my parents were you know professional musicians which is like and my, both my mother and father worked and we started off near chicago and moved to rockford when i was uh, in 1956 so then you know I was just a little kid yeah and um you know, my father sang in choirs and was a choir director, and he had a radio show, WMBI, Moody Bible Institute in Chicago, and he sang with Billy Graham. And and the, and the first time I ever was ever on stage, it was uh, I walked out on stage, not supposed to, but uh, Bar- Barbara Seville. I walked out. Wow. This is true. I was, I was three years old. I walked out on the stage, you know, going go to see my dad. Yeah, your dad's you know, what, out there. What's he dressed up like that for? You know, it's like I walked out there, and people started laughing and clapping. <laughs> And that's what I like still to this day, laughing and, and clapping. And now here we are all these years yeah. later. Tom, you used to shop at the record and music store, right? In his dad's store? Yeah. Well, everyone did. He would not really shop because he couldn't afford what you wanted. <laughs> so we'd look at, he had Vox Super Beatles and things like that. And oh, there's a Gretsch Country Gentleman and there's a Hofner bass and there's a Rickenbacker. Oh, my God. And how much would they have cost at the time? Like, uh, well, the most, maybe not that much. The like, most expensive guitar in the be, world was, a, I think, a Country Gent, and it was $600, which right. would be about $60,000 in today's. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what you, it would be you, exactly. But Rick, your first guitar only cost 65 bucks, right? Well, my first Les Paul that I ever yeah. bought, it was, uh, it was 1965. I paid $65 for it. You know, it was 10 years old then, you know, because it was a 55. You so know. it was used, not an antique, Yeah, right? there was yeah. no antique they, guitars. Yeah, they never called it anything vintage and all that kind <laughs> That's of why junk. people refinished them and wrecked them and thought nothing of it. Back yeah. in that, those days, people didn't, people would bring in a guitar and trade it in, right. you know, so they could get $100 off. Well, yeah, of certainly. Them. That's what people did. Nobody, you know, it's like, like buying a car. You take your old car in, you know, get... Millions of what you paid yeah, for. If you, if you got a Barbie doll, you naturally open it up and throw away the box, right? right? Who who hangs on to that stuff, right? Yeah. And now, Tom, were you a gearhead back then? Were you uh, involved, like well, interested in instruments and all that uh, sort of thing? Y- yes, and it really was uh, the Beatles and Stones connection, or Kinks, or whoever. Whatever they were using was the coolest thing ever. Yeah, yeah. So that was like, but those things really. For most people, me included, were out of reach. Really, the only thing people could really afford or that your parents would <laughs> buy for you yeah. were from Sears, you know, or Dan Electros or some lower end uh, harmony or yeah. something. You know, like, you know, naturally they're going to get you a guitar, but they're going to buy a $600 guitar or a $60 guitar. Well, right. they don't know what you're going to do. But. And I didn't need a country gent anyway. Do you have a, <laughs> do you have a picture of the, the receipt you got? Oh, well, you I don't. I should mother. have a picture of it. I brought in, my mother sent me a, my original receipt. From a Vox AC30, my parents bought for me in 1965 from Rick's dad's store. Your first bass is that it? Or? No, it's an amp. It's it's a, amp. I, I was a guitar box. player at first, right. so I didn't play bass until a few years later. Right. So it's just the it's so that, weird. So the original cool. I mean, you talk about throwing away your dad's your dad's yeah. handwriting on there, and they had all my dad's information, how much he made per week, and he had to <laughs> put it on layaway, of course. Cause wow. It, 
you know, that's he, the way he, it was he worked at Morton Salt as a salesman, <laughs> so he wasn't, you know, didn't have money. And, yeah, yeah. But, but they did they did it anyway. You know, that's the great thing about it. all of our parents. They really just they encouraged us, and they, you know, they didn't they didn't know why. It made no sense. You weren't. You know, you just they just went for it. We it wasn't it. a bad thing. You always hear about these parents. I, I'm not going to get a guitar, you know. Yeah. You, you know, like the Koreans. The, I was watching a show about Korean and cooking with uh, Anthony Bourdain. It says, you know, it's like if you say you're a CPA, uh, you know, you tell your parents you're a CPA, you're okay. It doesn't matter if you're a lousy one or a great one. If you say you're a chef, it's like a, like the insult. It's not a job that... Right. Is luckily my parents were musicians. Tom's weren't, so it's like right. that's a, like that's but a the other hand, of genius. Your yeah. parents were musicians, but they didn't make their money as musicians, so nobody considered yeah. it as a proper yeah. occupation any more than you would get into professional gambling. I mean, right. Well, see, hell, I'm you, always, can, you can do it if you, but what the hell? I'm always interested in that moment. So you know, you guys were in a couple of bands together. There was the Grim Reapers. There was Fuse. You made an album. The album didn't do so well. You go to England. You come back. That's, There's that's also an understatement. Yeah, there's all sorts of stuff going on. And then uh, you toured as um, another band uh, called the Sick Men of Europe. Sick Man of Europe, the yeah. Sick Man of Europe. And then uh, the, what I heard was that you checked into a hotel uh, one night uh, in uh, Bedendorf, Iowa. I don't know where that is. The, tri the Traveler Motel as the Sick Man of Europe decided on the name Cheap Trick while you were staying there and checked out as Cheap Trick. Is that uh, apocryphal that, or is yeah, that true? I have the receipt from one night, right? one never night before, and then so. the next night, yeah. I, I have it. That, uh, I don't know what the reason, you know, it's like that's a bit foggy, but that was, we had gone, we were probably hired as Sick Man of Europe because right. cause nobody knew whatever, and then Cheap Trick. Oh, we checked out. It was like it was just like sick man of Europe. We probably stiffed him on this. Sick That's man right. Of Europe. Yeah, 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 there was some financial <laughs> reasoning behind all that. It, it's a Bettendorf, Iowa. It's actually. Do you guys know American Pickers? Yeah, that yeah. show. That's where. Uh, That's where, where that shop is. is? Yeah, it's, their shop is nearby there, but they—they they, that's where uh, Mike Wolf was from. Wow. And Frank Fritz, too. Yeah, because you did some work with them. You sold them some guitars, right? I'm a good negotiator. <laughs> I've never heard that before. Yeah. <laughs> well, they approached me, or they approached, yeah. you know, because I had a museum for a while, mm -hmm. and they—they uh, they sent out their feeler guy. You know, he came out to Rockford and looked through some of my junk and some of the uh, some of the warehouse stuff that I had, and then they came back a second time, and then the th third time it was Frank and Mike, and uh, they ever, actually never went to my house. And Which is where all the good stuff is, I imagine. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> well, it was. Yeah. Uh, I can't talk about it now on the air. Uh, but, uh, yeah, went out to the warehouse. It was, actually, it's a cheap trick warehouse out there. So you see right. it, in the background, you see a bunch of Tom's cases and amps and stuff, and then a bunch of my junk, because I've got a... I've never thrown anything away. It is kind of amazing when you read and start to do the research on this, how detailed some of the information is, because you've not thrown anything away. And so Bettendorf, Iowa looms kind of heavy in your yeah, we, uh, lore because you have the, the ticket or the you know the receipt from the hotel. Yeah, from I actually have ago. it in here, too, and I have, a, <laughs> I have the postcard from the place. It, it was a dump. But, you know, <laughs> no. it was a dump that we could afford. And we played, the, you know, we played every place, and that was... In Bettendorf, Iowa, I would say, it's like, oh, do you, did your family ever go with you? I said, they've been to London, they've been to Chicago, right. they've been to New York, L.A., Tokyo. They've never been to Bettendorf, Iowa, <laughs> but I, but we have. Yeah. And Probably more spent than a fair once. amount of time there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm sure we were all in one room, too.
the, the years between, you know, the Grim Reapers and Fuse, where you made an album that didn't do anything. Although you said at one point that the musicians were better than you guys uh, in Fuse. They just didn't have the stick to itness. They didn't have the, the energy well, to make a go of it. I didn't say they're better, but it's like, you know, the guitar player, I mean, he was like, he was gifted, where I was like more of a songwriter. You right. know, I wanted to fit in. I always wanted to play in a band. And so I was playing a Mellotron. I was the first guy in the United States to have a Mellotron. You were a distributor of Mellotrons, L- right? Later after yeah. that, but uh, had that, and I played guitar. I played that, that 19, 1955 Gibson Les Paul. And the guitar player was very gifted, and we had like a kind of a parade drummer kind of right. yeah, you yeah. know f- fanatic guy and Tom was on bass and, I, and then I was the second guitar and keyboard and we had a singer that was like you know I you know <laughs> and I, I've not heard it is it kind of like it, it, it from my reading it sort of sounded like art rock a little bit well, like, I'd say a bit of a prog rock yeah. thing that started to happen at that time and we were you know kind of get like all oh, this just you know, we you started to get better as a player, so you started to do things that were more complicated, right. but just kind of for the sake of it. Right. And we had and a song, one song was called four four three four, so it was four four three four back <laughs> right and forth. Yeah. We had another song called uh, 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 it? it was six eight time. Right. Like flashy for the sake of yeah, being. Well, yeah. you know, it just it, but it, unfortunately that record did not come out well. Right. The, uh, the we, band as a live act, I thought was great. We were really, we were pretty we were good. proud of it. Yeah. You know, we were all had different ideas about the direction and all that stuff. Our drummer was kind of like a Buddy Rich kind of a guy, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like yeah. kind of a jazz, good, good flashy, great player. The guitar player Craig, he was yeah. a great player, and Joe, the singer, he was a great singer, but it was just kind of a different style. Right. It was more like. He kind of sounded like Tom Jones, and we wanted him to sound like Steve Marriott, you know? <laughs> well, in and around this time, it gets kind of complicated. The Cheap Trick story sort of gets complicated around this time because... Uh, still is. Still is. Well, the Naz is sort of in there somewhere. The band... It, it, like, it, 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 in 1969, I, I got married. Right. And I went to England for my honeymoon. This is December. Yeah. And I went to England, and one of the things I, because the year before we had gone to the Marquee Club and the Roundhouse and all the places that we read about, yeah. and, and uh, I went to the Marquee Club uh, for for Yes's Christmas party. It was called. That's what it was <laughs> wow. called. And I sat in the front row, and it was myself, my wife, and Todd Rungren and Miss Christine from the GTOs. Yeah, yeah. I knew who Todd who, Rungren was. They were because, sort of famous groupies, right? The GTOs yeah, and Frank Zappa's girls, were, girls together outrageously. I think. That's right. And I talked to Todd because uh, Tom and I were both big Naz fans. Yeah, we loved their. Loved, it was cool album. It was like it was like the first American group that, that we that had that sounded like an English group, right. and we loved them. Yeah, yeah, it was cool. We'd never met him before, so I'm sitting in the front row, and you know, said I'd read that you had broken up, and he said, Yeah, you know, you know, I, he didn't know me from a hole in the ground. Right. And, I'm infused. <laughs> you know, I, mean, I didn't even think I mentioned that. But I said, uh, you know, I've had a band fuse, blah, blah, blah. You know, so we had a little bit in common. And I said, um, we were always looking for a singer. We thought, you know, Stukey, the singer he had, it's terrific. And we, I thought, to, maybe I brought up the drummer first. I said, Tom Mooney, like the way he plays. Mm-hmm. He said, oh, yeah, he lives with his mother in Altoona, Pennsylvania. <laughs> and I said, oh, what about Stukey, the singer? He said, whatever you do, don't call him. And he said, "Okay, you know, not asking, you know, yeah, yeah, you know, not I liked him on record. I didn't, I didn't yeah. care about any other stuff." So he said, "Well, he, 
Call you know, I'll try to get you the numbers. Call my roommate. His name was Paul Fishkin. He lived with him in New York City. He gave me his phone number. So when I got home, called him. He gave me the number for Stukey, who lived in Texas. Of course, I called him right immediately. And I had I got both Tom Mooney and Stukey to go come to Rockford, Illinois, live at my house. You know, I had a two family. Yeah. And because uh, none of us had any money, so it was like I had to, I couldn't charge them to, you know, to be in the band. Right. And it was Craig, the guitar player, Tom, mm -hmm. myself, Stukey, the singer, and Tom Mooney, the drummer. So, you know, we got rid of the, the Buddy Rich guy and the Tom Jones guy, and we thought, this is going to happen. And it's like, but it was just, I don't even know. I can't remember what happened. Well, but, we never got it. We never really got around to writing songs. We were kind of, it was kind of goofed I up. I think we just drank just a lot. Felt, we drank a lot and it fell apart. And, and were you sort of moving at this point, though, towards the sound that might become more like a cheap trick sound? Like well, stripped down a little more from tried, the six, eight time signatures and all that stuff? Well, we tried to because really the NAS was, that was a bit what, you know, yeah. we really aspired to be the who, basically, yeah. which, which is what they did, too. They wanted to be that that yeah. thing, so we we uh, so yeah we were going in that direction. We weren't you know it was, but you know, but Stuky Todd Rungren was right. I shouldn't have called him, <laughs> but you know well, he's a he's a great guy. That wasn't yeah. he just wasn't a great live singer. Right. So it didn't really you, you see him on the album. It's like oh he looks like this you know this skinny svelte yeah yeah rock, hot, rock and roll singer yeah. and he gets off the plane. He was like six foot three and wearing you know combat boots and it's like. <laughs> Whoa, you know, it's like, uh, well, two ladies here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and he wasn't like, but he, yeah, he was a good guy, and you know, he was a sweet guy. And he, he's got that. He, the thing about him, he's got a voice. He's got a great quality to his voice, kind of like Jeff Lynne in a way. Right. He's got his voice sounds great, so that's a that's big. So yeah. on records, he's fantastic. It's just not so much in the yeah. Live just a, and, and at that time, we didn't have records, so all we were was a live bar band. Right, yeah. So you really couldn't fall back on. And yeah. Mooney, Mooney had a taste of success with the Naz, and so he was kind of, kind of stuck up in a way, you know. He was, and then besides the guys coming there, they brought their wives, girlfriends, right. so they're all living there. It's <laughs> like, it was just kind of yeah, it just fell off. We, we weren't making any money. And was, we weren't know. getting anywhere, and we just so so, so, so when Cheap Trick then comes together, and like the point where I was saying it gets kind of complicated because there's a couple of name changes. It seemed like you were played one night under one name, and then to be the Nas. Sometimes that, from my reading anyway, it's, it's, mm -hmm. it, it felt confusing. People coming out of the bar, and then there's the four of you, and all of a sudden it seemed to gel. And d did you know it at the time? We knew it in '74 when when really. Robin, Bunny, Rick, and I Cause there was another... got together and went in Rick's garage. And In 73, I tried to put it together. After Tom Mooney and Stukey left, yeah. we got a phone call from, from Stukey. He had free uh, studio time uh, in, in, Phil in Philadelphia. Yeah. And so, hey, do you guys want to come out and make records? You know, because we were good players. And so, so we called... We went out there. We lived with this guy named Steve Bruno and his wife. You know, brownstone. You know, we'd never seen anything. I had yeah, like yeah. a crappy house, <laughs> and it's like you know, it was kind of cool. And uh, we we made uh, some demos at uh, Sigma Sound where Bowie did uh, That's Young, Young Americans. Americans. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then we did we leave and come back again? I can't. No, remember. we stayed there. We, we stayed there yeah. till, till the seventy three, about October seventy three. And my wife is pregnant, and I had to, right? Yeah, you know, whatever. I had to go back to Illinois because we had no money. 
Uh, the only and I stayed behind. I didn't yeah. go. I stayed. So that's in where in '73 went back, different bass player and a different singer because we didn't want to. I didn't want to have Stuky again. Right. But, Stuky and I stayed in Philadelphia. Yeah. And you and Bunny went back and. Yeah, and so there was that little time period there, and uh, we went out and did shows with this other singer and this other bass player for six months or something. And I, I think it. We were looking for this this singer that uh, was was the singer that I was looking for because yeah. I went to England. I was looking. I talked to Gary. Uh, what was his name? Mike Harrison. Mike Harrison from Spooky Tooth. Oh yeah, know? yeah, yeah. I talked to him at a club and. Hi, I'm Rick Nielsen from Rockford, Illinois. Get out of here! You know, <laughs> nobody want to talk to me. But you know, I had ambition of what yeah. to do. You know, I always loved Steve Marriott. He was my favorite singer. Right. And you know, and but he was busy too. Yeah. And we became friends later. But so uh, we toured for a, you know played all every club we could. And then I'm not sure it was the beginning of '74. We had a chance to get. Uh, this guy named Robin, yeah, who I'd never seen, but Bunny knew him. He was playing at the Wisconsin in Wisconsin Dells with a duo, and I took our manager up there to go see him. Our manager thought it was the other guy. <laughs> it's a true story, <laughs> and he was under under contract for a couple months, and said, you know he didn't want to pass up that hundred and fifty dollars a week to go with us. And when his contract was over, for a lot less, yeah. There's I a lot remember of good stuff in there. the first Cheap Trick album, which sounded different than In Color. Like, In Color became kind of the soundtrack to a lot of our lives at that moment. When that album came out with I Want You to Want Me on it and uh, Hello There and all those songs, the, those songs became, you know, for me anyway, big radio hits. I heard them everywhere that I went. But that first record sounded like a band I wanted to see live. That's the way we were. Mm -hmm, we yeah. were most like the, we were on the first record, you know, basically produced by Jack Douglas and, yeah. and let us let us run with it until the Live of Budokan record, which was live again, yeah. semi-live. The second, third, and fourth albums, you know, look, we got it, you know, from In Color, mm -hmm. Heaven Tonight, and then Dream Please. Although it, it progressed, kind of the songs were good. But they tried to tone us down to make it us more radio friendly. Right. Well, and you know? it worked though. I mean, it it did work. Oh, because the know, songs, you have to, you, songs were good. I the think. songs they were good in Japan were anyway. Yeah. Yeah. And so yeah. Let, so so cheap trick comes together. Uh, you you're playing here. You're not having a, a huge amount of success. I think it's fair to say. Understatement. It's an again. Understatement. Yeah. Right. But then in Japan, you're kind of the American Beatles in Japan. And tell me about Tom going to Japan for the first time. Well, we were shocked that we had that. Well, we knew we had success, otherwise we wouldn't be going there. But we didn't really quite realize how extreme it was. I mean, yeah. it was so extreme that it it was exhausting. You couldn't you could not do one thing. You couldn't look out of the hotel window. You couldn't go in the hall. You couldn't go to restaurants. You couldn't do anything. Wow. And it was it was. Great, but it went on for that went on for a few weeks. When we were there, the first time in nineteen seventy, it was like it, before wow. that though. Like we had uh, Clock Strikes Ten, which mm -hmm. got no airplay any place except there. That was number one. I want you to want me was number one. And so we were getting airplay, which we weren't getting any any place else. And why Why do you think it clicked in Japan? Well, you know, you you don't really know ever. Yeah. There's, there's no uh, certainly no formula, but they said that they just. I think they they. 
got a kick out of kind of our cartoonish look. Right. I think they thought it was funny, and then they love they love like pop music and heavy stuff too. But they Read they that. like to learn. A lot of people uh, learn English from our records. They told right. us that's how they would learn listen to our songs. So it was kind of interesting. But I, you know, I I don't know. I think we we played rock and roll. You know, yeah, not like complicated so much where you couldn't follow it, but not so simple. And like Tom said, you know, people learned their learned English off not just our records, but it's like when you hear the live at Budokan record, when you hear that, it's like. I want you to want me. Right. He says it like that because the promoter said, talk slow so they can understand it. Here's a song from our new record. I mean, we don't talk like that, but they told us it was only going to be released in, in well, Japan. So Yeah, that was just sort of like a thank you to the fans of Japan, right? Totally. Well, it started out it was a, for a television show. And then they, when they and taped the, the show, them. they realized, oh, well, well, we might as well just throw a record together here yeah, and yeah. release that. Okay, fine. And that's what, what happened. Was that uh, the best thing that could have happened to the band at that point? I mean, it, 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 it we gave didn't. you great success. But then all of a sudden, from again, from my reading, it seems like the record companies then started saying, oh, we have to bring in outside songwriters. Oh, we no, have no, to. that was way later. Was it? Ten, yeah. That was 10 years later. Oh, was it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah I'm not exactly sure. But it was like, in, se in 78, we were, toured there. 79, we did record the Dream Police, yeah. ready to come out, but then the Japanese album came out, and then all of a sudden it became a hit. It was a huge import, and then after it was an import, they well, maybe we should put this out. <laughs> they put it out, and it delayed putting the Dream Police, which was finished, right. out. And then uh, we went back in 79, and it you know, and played again. It's like we were huge. <laughs> it's well, like I mean, it's like we, the first trip we went in '78, we were you know we were riding coach over yeah. there, and we got to the, and we stayed in the hotel. I stayed with Tom, two guys in a room. <laughs> I mean, I haven't stayed two people in a room since my kid was born. Well, yeah, we yeah. Later, we're thinking about it. Wait a minute, we had two of us each in a room. But they had the whole floor blocked off. Yeah. No, so wait a minute, couldn't we have just taken one of the other rooms? Yeah, yeah. really. It was, it was funny, yeah, but we never we didn't think about it. I mean, we left probably the last show we did was in Iowa. We were all four in a room, and there was no, you know, there's well, there was TV, but yeah. it was all, all just Japanese. There was no right. CNN or anything like that, so it was all Japanese game shows, and that's pretty much it. You yeah, sit in so, your room and, and don't look out the window. Yeah, like, you're okay. Do you take that time to write songs? What do you do? <laughs> Ron, no. what? Okay. Oh yeah, yeah. I don't think we wrote anything there. It was Wait. like it was just pandemonium over there. Right. We were probably nursing hangovers every day, so it didn't really matter. Tom, you're not a fan of live albums, I understand. Generally well, speaking, I, I don't know where I say, yeah. No, I'm not. How did you know that? I, you know, I keep hearing. I hate live albums. No, it's not <laughs> my favorite. My favorite live album is The Who Live at Leeds. Yeah, but you know, I'd seen The Who and I had all their records, and so if that, I'd prefer to hear a studio album and see what. They put their all their energy into. Right. What do they want? You know, I, I, I don't want to hear a live the Beatles doing the White Album live. Right. I out of curiosity, yes, but I want to hear. You know, I want to hear what they have up their sleeve and hear what the you know, and then later hear a live albums. So, no, it's not my favorite. Your label mates are people like Taylor Swift. That's crazy. Well, you we're label machine, mates, right? but we were we've been label mates with. Michael Jackson and the Dave Clark Five. And I don't know. You don't, we don't have any 
you know, no inter- interaction. I just think it's cool. Yeah. I think it's cool. I think it's great. Yeah, yeah, no, it's, yeah, it's cool. Yeah, it's cool because they're successful. So that's nice. Yeah. And and how did all this happen? Because you went the independent route for for some time. And so tell me a little bit about how the deal with Big Machine happened. Well, just fortunately, Scott Burchetta, who's owns Big Machine, okay. took a big interest in us. He was a big fan, and he saw that we you know we needed help. And he was really the first one to step forward. And ma- here's a major label, and look at I want to you know. I, I think he, I can do something to, for you talk, guys. He talked to Tom first, you know, because Tom lives in Nashville. He talked to Tom. Yeah. I didn't know him from a hole in the ground. Yeah, I met him through a mutual friend, John Hamlin, and he introduced us. He said, I think you'd like to meet you and Scott to get along. And kind of one thing led to another there. And he, you know, Rob and Rick came down to have a meeting with Scott. He, you know, we were talking to him, and he said, you know, I, I, you guys haven't been treated right. I want to get you back like it was in the 70s. You you haven't been promoted properly. You haven't been managed properly. This is ridiculous. It, it, it's not it's not right. I just think this there, there's something there. You guys are recording all this great new music. You're still a viable act. You're not an oldies tribute act. This is ridiculous. So we're like, yeah, yeah you're right. Everything he said sounded yeah, great. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, and he had all the success, and he goes, look, I've made I've made a lot of money. It doesn't, I'm, I'm not even doing this for the money. I just think this is a great thing. I love rock and roll. It's you my, guys should be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. That's he, exactly he what he said. said. That four years ago, he said it to us, right and, when we first started talking. And he didn't say, "Here's what you got to do." Here's what you know. It's like we had a lot of stuff we had to clean up. Yeah, you know the lawsuits, the, the change, changing this, changing that. And in the meantime, we went out and we were given the opportunity to uh, to record, and we did four different times. Four, you know, eight songs in L.A. Yeah. tour, seven songs in L.A. tour. <laughs> Eight songs in right. Nashville tour, seven songs in Nashville. Now we got thirty songs, and it's like, well, you know, we worked with somebody. We introduced him to uh, to Julian Raymond, the guy that we worked with when we had done a, a John Lennon tribute thing. Right. We did a seventy show. We did uh, the Transformers album, Cold uh, Turkey. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I said the John Lennon tribute. Oh, okay, thing. yeah. And then we did a, a couple of our records with him, and. Uh, a guy that Tom had known in L.A., all of a sudden, Scott sees him sees what a great guy he is. Hey, you want to move to Nashville? He didn't. He didn't want to go, but he made him an artistic opportunity to do the same thing. And last year, uh, he got Song of the Year with... Uh, with uh, he did the last two records. He's with, in Nashville for three weeks. And he's wow. got a Grammy for the best country song. Yeah, like, hey, Julian, wow. nice, nice work. Glenn wow. Campbell, and then so now he's worked again with us on this record, and you know, it's like so we did it basically on our own. We recorded the album. We paid for everything ourselves. Yeah. We did it before we were signed, right? And then all this stuff was going on, and we did. We okay, we've got all the songs together. And it's like wow, okay, boom. And hey, come on over here, you guys. We go in what one day while we're done. Okay, here, we want you to sign here. Did you ever read it? I didn't ever read the contract. <laughs> I, I'm a musician. I read it, but I didn't understand it. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. So but he made, said, hey, and he helped us find an agency, helped us find management, and made it as an offer we couldn't refuse. He wanted and it's kind of the us. same. it's kind of the same reason Julian moved from L.A., yeah. his whole family. It's Scott's passion for music, and just to hear him, he he's a musician, and he's doing it for the right reasons. He loves music, and he's... It's the hardest worker I've ever seen. He's, yeah, that's like, like wow. you know, well, with Taylor Swift. How, who can think they're going to make a career out of a you know a fourteen year old or twelve or whatever yeah. it was? Yeah, he saw, he saw that. It, he saw it and just you know 
they can't tell him no because he just went for it, went for it, and so all of a sudden, you know, all of a sudden, you well, know. he was in there sweeping the floors and cleaning the toilets and stuff in his own, you know. Yeah. He started the label. He there was nobody there. It was just him. He could have hired me. I knew how to sweep. <laughs> and the result, saw Jack Douglas started too. He was sweeping yeah, the floors in the bathroom, right. and the, it wasn't that they needed uh, Eddie Lee and Eddie needed some help. Somebody with Alice Cooper or something. You go, I'll do it. Uh, we were out of time. Great. The album, I mean, I know, just, the album oh, is here. Oh, Bang, it. Zoom, crazy, hello, and it's available wherever you buy music. Uh, it's been my pleasure, Rick Tom. Thanks so much for Richard, coming thank in. Thank you, Richard. And, you're uh, the man. Uh, check out, uh, check out the album. You can tell you're Canadian now. You're in, uh, that was a, there. We out, are. Out, you know, yeah, that's right. Before check it was uh, that, that Boston. Yeah, that's right. It, it, we there, love this guy. There, there's a weird little mix of accents that happened with me. Oh, uh, yeah, thanks mid, to you Midwest, for listening. Mid, I'm going to keep interrupting it. Midwest nasal. Twang is me. I'm yep. Rick. Richard, you're a gentleman and great. Thank you. Hey, I still want to see that ticket. I don't believe you saw uh, that yeah, ticket. For right. I was there. It's, it's there. Uh -huh. and, I, and from, I believe it was the government. Uh, I can't remember what the club was called because it's changed a couple of times. I saw you guys play there, and I have guitar picks from that show. Hey, guess what? Hey, there's guitar picks. No. Thank you very much. Brand new awesome. One. And uh, find, I got another Awesome. One. You can't have you just have one stupid one. One for both hands and for each hand. Uh, thanks so much and thanks to Drew <laughs> and the board. I love it. Thank get you. out of here. Man, what a show. What a show. My thanks to Spike Lee, Jonah Hill, George Zimbel, and Cheap Trick. A pleasure to have them all. They were just four of the hundreds of people that stopped by the House of Krauss this year. And we're always glad to have them. But... More than that, we're glad to have you come by absolutely every week. We put a new show up every single Monday. Be sure to come by. You never know who's going to stop by for a visit. And who knows? It might be one of your favorite people. 